Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 35 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I sat down with Bailey Farron, the co-founder and CEO of Perimeter. Perimeter is a real-time disaster visualization and collaboration platform for public safety agencies. The Perimeter platform allows first responders to map incidents in real time, gain access to information posted by other emergency personnel, and issue alerts to the public. As the daughter of both a firefighter and a paramedic, Bailey realized the challenges that first responders face in using paper maps to navigate their way to fires and other emergency incidents. Inspired to help solve this problem and bring public safety agencies into the 21st century, Bailey started Perimeter in 2019. She talks with us about her take on what it means to be an entrepreneur, how she thinks about leadership, and what it's like selling to government agencies. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We'd greatly appreciate it, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Bailey, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your awesome story in building Perimeter. Thanks for being on the show. Absolutely, Lee. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start from um, childhood. What was it like growing up? How many siblings do you have and where are you from originally? Yeah, so I am from Santa Rosa, California, and I had kind of an interesting childhood in that I was homeschooled for pretty much my entire life up until I went to the local community college, Santa Rosa JC. And um, I was homeschooled along alongside my my four brothers. Oh my gosh! And so it was definitely not. You yeah, it wasn't like a traditional. It's like you went. Yeah, right. Almost, almost. I don't know. I'd like to think I bring a lot of personality to the table, but um, yeah. And my my parents weren't very very focused on academics. They were much more um, much more focused on giving my brothers and I a love for learning and a lot of creativity. They wanted us to have time on our hands when we were younger to work on to work on any kind of projects or research any topics or in some cases start any businesses that we were in, inspired to to work on and i feel very fortunate to have that background although at the time i wanted to go to school very badly yeah so looking back i um i think that we were very very privileged to have all that time on our hands Interesting. Homeschooling. I'm always so curious about that. You know, it's like, I don't know many people that have gotten homeschooled and it sounds interesting. I understand why parents would want to do that because I think our school system is pretty messed up anyways, but the social aspect is like, I don't know. How was that? Like you didn't have any kind of girlfriends in school or, well, at least you you didn't have like bullying, I guess, unless your yeah, brothers there, were kind there of, there was mean. no bullying. There was no bullying. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. But, you know, fortunately, I think for my family, they're you know, there, there, there were a lot of us, right? There are five kids. And then next door growing up, there was another family that was homeschooled that had four kids and we lived in a cul-de-sac. So it was just the nine of us kind of every day for, you know, most of my, at least my elementary school days and a lot of my, my junior high days as well. So it sounds like you had recess with the neighbors and exactly. yeah, that's pretty cool. Recess often, oftentimes kind of turned into a, a prolonged recess that just meant school was let out early in, in some cases. And, you know, as far as other social opportunities, I grew up playing a lot of sports. Mm -hmm. And so I did get to, you know, have a lot of, have some peers um, that I got to spend a lot of time with, at least on the field. Yeah. What sports did you play? So I played baseball in elementary school and then I transitioned to softball. Um, I played basketball, golf, tennis. I didn't play, uh, I didn't play soccer because I thought that was, that was too girly. 
you know, I'm really? like, yeah, I know. That's I funny. Think, honestly, that was a big mistake because that is definitely like the international sport. But I thought that it was that it was too lame, you know, having four brothers. I was I was shying away from anything anything pink, and uh, yeah, I regret that decision to this day. Is soccer pink for some reason? Yeah, it's just it's something it's something that a lot of the a lot of the girls that I knew were really into soccer and horses and Little House on the Prairie. And oh, worn off of those things. Oh, so it was like in that category of like what yeah. girls do. I was very much a tomboy. I was very much a tomboy for, yeah. for the the first few years. I can see that. I, I was very similar. I was like, oh, the girls are playing the flute. Definitely not doing that. You know, I yeah. looked for like the instrument that no one wanted to play, which ended up being the trombone, which is like crazy oh embarrassing God. looking back. But I thought it was the coolest thing at the time and was like, ah, you know, I could, I saw all the different categories of kids. It's like the nerds yes. played the clarinet. The girls were all flute players. The popular yep. kids played saxophone. The rebels played the drums. Like I had it all figured out in my head and I was like, I don't really identify with any of these people. So I'm just going to go straight for the trombone well you'll have to tell me who played the trumpet because that is the instrument that i played when i was younger <laughs> the brass section is where all the entrepreneurs were yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding so you went to would you were you also homeschooled throughout high school as well or did you go to a high school yeah. So the first few years of high school, I actually went to this like homeschool co-op organization where the parents of other homeschool kids would get together and some of them were doctors and engineers and they would teach courses that were specific to their expertise. And so I got to, I got to go to that kind of like co-op system a couple days a week, but pretty early into high school, I started going to the junior college and I loved it. I loved my JC experience. I think that it was a really great decision for me. Um, and I was there until I transferred to UC Berkeley. Awesome. And so at UC Berkeley, you're like, whoa, there's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> How many people can Heaven. fit in the classroom? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it was a good thing. <laughs> yes, very much so. There were 36,000 students at UC Berkeley. And I felt like I had just, like I just showed up on some kind of Disneyland academic campus. Like I said earlier, one of my parents' goals was to make sure that their kids felt like school and education and learning was a privilege and something that we really sought out for ourselves. And so when I got to Berkeley, I was so excited about every academic opportunity that that afforded itself to me. And so I definitely, I definitely was was pretty extra when I was in college. I got the the nickname Leslie Nope, and I think it was unfortunately incredibly fitting. What do you mean? What was your reputation at college? I was just, have you seen Parks and Recreation? Parks and Rec? Oh, I haven't oh, seen it. It's got it. Well, it's it's a TV show with a um, with one of the one of the characters is, you know, the person who shows up to a, a work, you know, a work birthday party with the birthday cake and all the like and, and and gifts and balloons and is so excited about this birthday so much more excited than anyone else at this office right to the point where they're kind of like where everyone's a little bit embarrassed for them i felt like that's that was me when it came to a lot of academic opportunities i was the kid who went to office hours every week and you know i was the thing that i was most excited for was like my study group on the weekend like i was incredibly lame I mean, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like you had a million friends because I feel like all the girls would be like, we need her as a best friend so she can do, you know, our baby showers, our wedding, be our, yeah, you know, yeah, come maid of honor. And a lot of events for people. You're starting to, it's starting to become clear why that happened. <laughs> They're like her. We need her on our team. Recruit, recruit. Yeah, I very much, I, I very much non-ironically adore team building exercises. If I, I take them very seriously. So yeah, were you kind of always the leader on the team? Yeah, I think so. I think I, you know, if there's someone who is, you know, incredibly energetic and, and confident, I will, I will absolutely step down and, you know, I don't need to be the leader. However, I have three younger brothers, so I'm pretty naturally bossy. <laughs> um, or, or I guess, you know, that's something that I, that I learned over time. And so I, I do think that, you know, in a group, I, there's a good chance that I will probably, you know, start, start organizing people just because I'm really enthusiastic and, mm -hmm. um, I'm definitely not too cool for school. I've never been cool in my life and I don't, 
think I'll ever aspire to be cool. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely willing to, to put myself out there, um, even if it means looking a little bit bizarre. That's funny. So what were you studying in college? So at first I was studying rhetoric and I was studying rhetoric because at my junior college, I joined the debate team and I absolutely loved it. Rhetoric is a degree that's, it's a little bit like um, history and philosophy of, um, it's like history, yeah, history and philosophy kind of put together. Mm -hmm. um, rhetoric pays a lot of attention to the history of ideas, um, how they've been created and changed over time. It's a lot less focused on kind of oration than you might think. And it was something that I was, you know, really passionate about. I was really into, really became interested in philosophy when I was in high school. And so that was something that I was just absolutely, I loved being immersed in, in philosophy when I was at Berkeley. But after I took um, a summer program that gave me a lot of exposure to entrepreneurship, I also decided to study cognitive science because I learned that, and you know, my experience with this program led me to see how many of the traits that I thought were important for entrepreneurship, like having a degree in computer science and having you know, parents who were also in, in business in some way. Like I thought those were, were pretty important for, for getting, getting off the ground. Um, but when I was studying at this entrepreneurship program, what I started to see is all the ways that understanding people made one of the biggest differences when it came to success and failure as a company, right? Being able to empathize with your customers, understand their pain points and understand, you know, what they need is you know it's it's so important and it's a really it's it's not a skill that that many people talk about when they talk about what it means to be an entrepreneur and the more i learned about cognitive science and the more i learned about you know how how the brain kind of dictates in some ways how we operate the more i was excited to you know understand people and really get into the neuroscientific weeds and you know i thought at the time that i might I might do something entrepreneurial in the future. You know, I was responsible for my own education primarily, you know, after junior high. And so I was used to, you know, knowing how to come up with a, a hypothesis and test it and do my own research without any, any direction. But I definitely didn't think that I'd be doing something like that right out of college with a degree in cognitive science and rhetoric. Yeah. So tell me, what do you think it means to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think, I think what it means to be an entrepreneur is to be someone who pays so much attention to their environment that they recognize when the status quo isn't good enough for for people who are who are being affected right i think you know there are so many many problems that need to be solved across the world and it's i think it really takes a person who who pays you know who pays attention and you know, no, learns how to kind of read a room and read a situation in a way that enables them to, to feel the feelings of or empathize with a lot of the people that they're exposed to every day. Um, I know for me, you know, I never would have been, been able to understand the problem that we're solving at Perimeter if I hadn't, you know, been in a situation where I felt, I felt the pain of the people who are going to be our users in the future. Mm -hmm. And I think that empathy is one of the most important, um, one of the most important skills for, for entrepreneurs. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. I agree with you a lot. And I think that um, empathy is something that isn't really spoken of very much either as something, you know, everybody's like, oh, what do, you, what do you think makes up a great entrepreneur? And the first answer is like grit, 
you know, <laughs> resiliency, well, you know, all these other kind of like, they're, you got to be tough to be an entrepreneur, yeah. right? But yeah. you actually also have to have an enormous amount of empathy. And that's, yeah. you know, a really, really good point. Yeah. Um, I think with, with grit, you know, I, I agree that it, it is so important, but I think, you know, there's a reason why there's always a reason behind why someone is gritty and, and why they're resilient. And I think, you know, if you, if you feel the pain of your user, you really understand where they're coming from. When things get really hard, that's your reason for, you know, stepping up to the plate and continuing the work and being resilient or having grit or being tenacious, right? Mm -hmm. So having that empathy, I think can lead to a lot of those other traits that are, you know, of course, so important to being a founder. Absolutely. It's funny that you mentioned um, that before this class, you kind of were thinking, oh, entrepreneurs must just have parents that are entrepreneurs as well. And, you know, your idea of what an entrepreneur looked like or their experience yeah. shifted because of that class. What about you? What did your parents do? Yeah. So my parents are both first responders. My mom was a paramedic for 30 years. Dad was a, um, he just recently, a few months ago, retired as a fire captain in Petaluma, California. And now my mom runs a nonprofit that helps first responders proactively with the effects of post post-traumatic stress injuries. And, you know, many of my family, you know, outside of just my, my parents are first responders. And so this really is, you know, an industry that, that I was raised in. What was it like having two parents that were basically on call, right? They're like first responders. I mean, what was that like? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting when you're, when your dad's a firefighter, they have interesting shift schedules. So he'd be gone for three or four days at a time. And then, you know, maybe back for one or two and then gone again for many days. And, you know, it, growing up, it just felt like that was, that was normal. My mom was home with us a lot of the time. Um, she, she was primarily home in the early days of, of my childhood. But, you know, I don't think I really understood my dad's job until the first time um, he got injured. He had a very, very, um, a, a very concerning uh, experience where he, he almost lost his life by, um, he, was on the, he was on the roof of a building, um, cutting into using a chainsaw to let some of the smoke out of this burning building. And um, someone accidentally, another firefighter accidentally hit him with a master stream. It's a really, really big hose. And, um, he got, you know, he almost got knocked off the building and mm. it was actually his, his air tank that got caught on this little tiny kind of parapet wall that saved his life. But wow. I remember when I was, when I was, I think, um, six or seven years old, I remember the first time, you know, we had to go see him in the hospital. And that's when I realized, oh, my dad's job is, you know, it's, he's not like other dads, you know, <laughs> right. he, he's, he's got a, he's got a, a breathing tube and he's all hooked up to this, you, you know, these machines. And that's when I realized it's like, Oh, my dad goes out every day. Every time he leaves, he's going out to, you know, help save people's lives. And that means he's risking his own. And that's really the first time that I, that I understood in a visceral way, what that meant. Yeah. And how old were you? I was, I think I was, I was six my youngest brother had just been born. So I think that's how old I was. Oh, wow. And then, you know, having a mom as a paramedic, she's the kind of person who, you know, if there was a car accident on the road and we, we seem to see a lot of these and there were no responders there yet. She's going to pull the minivan over to the side of the road. She's going to bust out flares from the back. My four brothers and I are just going to be in the car. Like this is our life. Mom is, you know, is, is redirecting traffic from her minivan with these flares you know, mm -hmm. with, a, with five homeschool kids in the back, you know, it's just, yeah. that's something that, that we saw a lot growing up, especially because we did spend so much time with our parents. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it definitely influenced, you know, all of my, all of my brothers and I pretty, pretty intensely. Wow. That's really crazy. I mean, and you were in the car watching your mom, you know, kind of do this. It reminds me of, um, I used to live, we used to live on this like hill where people, well, there were high school kids that went to my high school that would fly down this hill and there was a sharp turn at the end. And so they would speed, they'd like get air at the top of the hill and they'd come flying down and they couldn't make the turn. Wow. So like we, there was numerous like car crashes like right outside of my house at the bottom of the hill where this turn was. And it would happen in the middle of the night, you know, you hear this, 
right and it's like and then we all wake up and we're all like oh my god we hope they're okay my mom and dad go running out like first responders that are totally untrained you know they go out there to make sure they're okay they call the cops they wait till you know the ambulance or whatever shows up but that was like pretty terrifying my word yes to have that as your job you know to really be that person who's there um, you know, the first person to kind of see, make sure everything's okay. That's, that can weigh a lot because it doesn't always end well. And yeah. I imagine it's very traumatic, you know, to yeah. not only put your own life on the line to be the first responder, but to see what's happening and take that home with you at the end of the day, or try not to take it home with you. Yeah, That's really emotionally tough too. Yeah, absolutely. And especially I think because my parents spent the first few years of their career in, in Oakland, um, which was, you know, 30 years ago when they were paramedics, it was, there was so much violence in Oakland and in the Bay Area in general. And so it's a very different place kind of being in Oakland than it is being in Santa Rosa as a paramedic where my mom also spent some time. And so you, the exposure to trauma is, is really through the roof. Wow. Yeah. So you were at, you graduated from Berkeley yes. and did you have any internships or first jobs while you were in school or after school? Yeah. So when I was, I think my, my very first job was probably, you know, running a, running a baking company when I was like 11 years old. But my first real job was when I was uh, 15 and a half, I got a job as a, as a waitress and a server um, for some catering organizations that worked at a bunch of Sonoma County wineries. You know, we've got a lot of wineries in my home County. So I spent a lot of time there. And I actually worked worked as a waitress and server for five years, so up through my first year um, at Berkeley. And my first year, I was commuting every weekend to go work at the same restaurant that I'd been at um, for for a couple years. At that point, I loved my manager. He was such an inspirational leader. He's the kind of person who, you know, no job is too small. He's the first in, he's the last out at the restaurant. And he, re- he really treated everyone who worked there with an incredibly high um, degree of respect. It didn't matter if you were, you know, a waiter, if you were the owner of the restaurant, or if you were, you know, a busser or a dishwasher, he gave you the time. Um, he always gave you the time that you needed. And I was so inspired by him that I wanted to keep commuting while I was at Berkeley. However, after I attended this this summer abroad program where um, I got to learn a lot about entrepreneurship, I decided to get a job in Silicon Valley. And originally I thought I'd be looking for an internship, but I found I found um, a company called Anadot. It's a it's a machine learning company that does anomaly detection and big data. And I I got an opportunity to interview there. I was completely unqualified. I literally did not meet any of the qualifications for this job, um, but I thought it'd be good interview practice. So I, I applied and I ended up getting a call back after, um, after my interview and they were in Sunnyvale, which was an hour away from Berkeley. And for some reason I decided to take the job, even though it was gonna require me to commute at 4 a.m. three days a week while I was a full-time student. And I'm so glad I did because I was able to learn so much about, you know, technology, about startups. We were at the series C stage at the time. And so, you know, in some ways we have a lot of traction and others were still figuring everything out. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was really exciting to be in that environment and to have, to have an opportunity to learn so much about, about sales and business development that I, you know, otherwise probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have learned on my own. What were some of those skills that you're referring to in business development that you picked up on that job that you've been able to maybe carry with you as a founder? Yeah. So I think one of the most important ones is, you know, being able to, I guess, just have the confidence to, and the knowledge of how to get in front of anyone you need to talk to. Um, as a founder, you need to do like outreach has to be a major skill set of yours. And that, that could be reaching out to customers. It could be, you know, reaching out to the venture capitalists and angel investors that you need to work with, or even recruiting new talent. And when I was at Anadot, I was pretty much given a laptop and, and given some guidance, but then said, okay, go figure out your strategy. And, you know, at first I would spend a tremendous amount of time on LinkedIn, on email, cold calling, you know, learning, you know, trying to get in touch with people through the kind of the three outlets that were recommended to me. But I was not having the success that I, 
I thought I should be having. And I really believed in the work that the company was doing. So I felt like, you know, the, the actual platforms that I was using, just, they weren't doing, they weren't doing the work justice. And so during my Thanksgiving break one year, I decided to go door to door to all of the, all of the public, not, not the public safety agencies, that's what I do with Perimeter, to all of the, the different companies that I think would be, you know, good buyers of our product. We're an enterprise machine learning company. And so I just started showing up at, you know, at their office and said, hey, I've been trying to reach, you know, the VP of analytics for a few months. I really believe in what we're doing. And that's why I'm here to talk to you. And we had, I had a lot of success doing, you know, just kind of showing up. And I think it, it kind of instilled a type of confidence that I've been able to take to perimeter where, you know, I'm willing to show up and put myself out there, even if I'm, you know, even if I'm really nervous and in some cases, especially if I'm really nervous. And yeah. so I think that's, that's a skill that entrepreneurs really need. Absolutely. Um, I've done quite a bit of that door to door myself. I'm curious because normally there's a gatekeeper, you know, a office a receptionist, someone who's there, who's like, who are you? You know, <laughs> What can we do for you? Oh, they're busy. You know, did you run into those? And if so, what'd you do? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some gatekeepers are um, more protective than others. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, the first thing is you need to walk in like you were supposed to be there. Yep. You, know, you can't, you can't kind of sheepishly say, Oh, I'm just kind of here. Cause I'd like to see this person. Is there any way I could get five minutes of their time? No, or like, no, <laughs> yeah, you show up, you know, the person you need to talk to you, like you understand a little bit about like the work that they're doing. You show up and you say, hi, I'm here to talk to this person, you know, and, and that's it. And they'll say, Oh, okay, well, let me, let me get a hold of them. Sometimes the actual, maybe VP of analytics would be so confused. They're like, wait, someone's here to talk to me that right. they would, they'd walk out and I'd say, I just need five minutes, just five minutes to tell you about what we're doing. And at that point, you know, there's like this college student who shows up at your door wanting to talk to you. I think people are curious enough to say, okay, what does she need from me? Right. And, you know, sometimes it's just that, that one kind of curiosity or that question in the mind of the person that you want to talk to that can open the door. And sometimes I was escorted by security out of a building Right. You know, there, there are definitely, there are, there are a handful of both situations Yeah, and you have to recognize when you're walking into a building that isn't yours, that one of those things is probably going to take place. Or you're like tempted to run out yourself. Cause you think you're going to be, you know, the, you're going to get arrested or something crazy. Yeah, right. right? Well, and you're like, I, never, <laughs> I don't think I ever, you know, made anyone feel threatened in any way, but, <laughs> but yes, I definitely, you know, I, I exited politely as well on occasion. Mm, that's interesting. It reminds me of when I, I actually showed up at a, at a office and said that I had a meeting with this woman who was who I needed to talk to. And she was the decision maker. She's someone I read about online. I told the receptionist I had an appointment with this woman and I didn't. And they thought that they messed up. So this woman comes out and is like, hi, oh my God, I'm so sorry. She's like apologizing to me because she thought she had a meeting with me, um, <laughs> which is hilarious. You know, I later told her like, I actually never had a meeting with you, but thanks for taking the time <laughs> because that was after I ended up signing a contract with them and they thought it was hilarious. They actually loved it. They thought it was so funny, oh my gosh, but um, yeah, I actually pretended to have a meeting and, and she thought she messed up. Um, so did the receptionist. They're like, Oh, we don't see you on the calendar. What time was your meeting? And I'm looking at the clock above their head. I'm like four o'clock. And they're like, Oh my gosh, you're not in here. Um, I'll be right back. And I'm like, shit, are they going to go get this woman right now? Or do I need to leave? Because this woman's gonna be like, what are you doing here? And you know, you have all those fears in your head of what's different yep. scenarios. And I'm like, Oh, I've lost That's my true. marbles. I need to like, just jump out the window or like go outside. I need to just take the elevator back There's down. What elevator. am I doing? And thank God, you know, I didn't make any actions on the crazy thoughts in my head. And before I knew it, the door swung open and this woman's like, oh, I'm so sorry about our meeting. I didn't realize we had it today. How are you? What can I do for you? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's incredible. That is such a good story. Yeah. And much longer wow. story. I have to have a whole different episode about a lot of those yeah. stories, but anyway, so you went door to door, which is super smart. It was outside of the box. No one else was probably doing that on the team. You're like, I'm just going to go. That's very fearless of you. Where do you think that came from? 
Yeah. So when I was, uh, when I was a kid, like I mentioned, I had this baking company and my, I started it with my next door neighbor who was, who was nine years old. I was 11. And, um, this might sound, you know, kind of funny, but we actually had a very successful, um, business selling baked goods in our neighborhood. And we went door to door and we would, you know, every single weekend and Friday, we'd go door to door, we'd bake so many batches of cookies and we would, you know, bag them up individually and just walk up. And at first, when we started doing that, I was pretty nervous, you know, as a, as a little kid, right, wanting to walk up to a stranger's door. Looking back, not sure if I would do it, but um, we, we did that for so long that I think I built up the confidence in myself enough to think that, oh, I am like a badass saleswoman. Like everyone wants to buy my cookies. This is so awesome. And what I realized is no, I was 11 and everyone thought I was, you know, so adorable for like being out there selling them something that they <laughs> felt they bad. Bought, right. Yeah. But it gave me the confidence to think, oh, I can just go door to door. And, you know, I think it was really helpful that with any kind of entrepreneurial ventures that I had when I was, when I was a kid, my parents were very supportive. You know, they would, they'd drive me to Costco so that I could get all of the, all of the ingredients. I would, you know, buy everything myself and we'd, we'd reinvest our, our, you know, all of the, the money that we made into, into kind of growing our baking company. And I think that, you know, that door-to-door experience was really meaningful for me today. And back when I was originally doing it for Anadot. It sounds like it. Did you get any nose as a kid? So you kind of oh, learned yeah. rejection and that you could survive. Yeah. yeah, I did. I did get a lot of nose. And I think as a kid, I was kind of shocked because I loved cookies and I knew adults had money and I assumed that everyone liked cookies. And right. since adults had money, why would they not be buying my cookies? So exactly. if I went, you know, to someone's front door and I was like, Hey, you know, we're selling cookies. They're a dollar, right? Mm-hmm. Total, yes, total, total steal off. Yeah. Right? <laughs> what? No, great deal. Um, and so when, when someone's like, Oh, we're not interested. It's like, really? Like, you, you don't, we just baked these cookies. Like you don't want freshly baked cookies delivered to your door. Fine. Two for and a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, um, I think it was really great to have that experience. I will also say that when I did this, this Berkeley study abroad program, um, we had to do an exercise called, um, rejection therapy and we had to, we were given um, we were given an item that wasn't worth very much, and we had to go um, and find people who'd be willing to trade the item that we had with any item that they had that might be perceived to be of greater value. And so, not only is that kind of an intimidating situation at times to approach strangers, but we were doing this in Italy. So most of the people we were approaching didn't speak. English or didn't speak very good English, at least not in the part of Italy that we were in. And so I think, you know, being forced to do exercises like that made me a lot more comfortable being flat out rejected. Yeah. I think the door to door thing is excellent. You know, I, cause you think about, you know, kids with the lemon st- lemonade stand, you know, and they're just kind of sitting there waiting for customers who are actually interested to come up to them, but that's not real business. Like it's actually pretty rare when they come to you, you have to go hunting them down. Yes. So I love the door to door aspect of like, that should be the lemonade stand. It should not be a stand. It should be going door to door selling the lemonade and getting rejected because like you said, that's like the one most important thing. And I don't, think you get rejected very much if you're sitting on a corner, you know, with a stand trying to sell lemonade to people that come over to you with money ready to buy. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why I actually was inspired to sell cookies door to door is because I tried the lemonade stand thing. And I was like, what these people, they, they don't interact with me. So they're not buying my, you know, my lemonade, but if I can force them to talk to me, they'd right. much, they'd certainly be much more likely. And I think, you know, for me, when I was able to spend some time talking to these adults that w- that lived in my neighborhood, you know, I, I started asking myself questions of, well, it's great that I, that they'll spend a dollar every week, you know, buying cookies, but what if I can get them to like order an entire batch of cookies? Mm-hmm. And so then like a few, a few months in, we would not only go up with like a bag of cookies for a dollar that we were selling, but we'd also ask people like, Hey, do you want to order a batch like next week? You're like, move over girl scouts. <laughs> we don't want your mint cookies anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're not, the girl scouts aren't making the profits, right? <laughs> we were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have fun making nothing. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. They get I, the girl scouts. They do get a pretty amazing retreat with all the money that they make and you know, a great Girl Scout community, but you know, I want to see the cold, hard cash, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Greater ROI on doing it yourself. 
And so you go door to door, you, you know, for this company, a startup, is there anything else that you learned or took away from working within a startup environment that kind of helped you with building your company? Yeah, I think, I, I think one thing is I had, a, I had some really inspiring managers while I was there and they really believed in me and they made me believe that, you know, I could, that I could do things that maybe I didn't seem qualified for, including that job. I mean, they hired me when the requirements included a technical degree, you know, from a four-year university. I didn't have one. I was still in school. They required three years of sales experience at a technical company. Um, and there were a few other requirements. Oh, you need to be full-time. And there were a few other things. I didn't check any of those boxes, but I prepared for this interview for weeks before. I knew everything about that company. I knew how their software worked, at least, you know, at some rudimentary, um, rudimentary level. I, I knew kind of, I did so much research into cold calling and, you know, how to actually sell specifically their product, what some of the, the primary, um, no's would be and the reasons why you'd be rejected. And I, you know, I came up with answers to those, to those questions and those objectives of objections. And when I went in for my interview, they had me do a cold call simulation. And I was so prepared that they ended up offering me this job that I absolutely, you know, did not have any of the qualifications for. And I think that taught me and the manager who, who, who actually did hire me, you know, made me realize that, hey, even if I don't think I check these boxes, that as long as I show up and am, you know, the hardest working person, as long as I come having done my homework, I come prepared to these meetings and I'm willing to step out and ask for things that maybe I, I don't think I'm ready for and willing to do everything I can you know, if that opportunity is, is given to me, then I'll be successful. And I think I learned that at that company and I'm super grateful that I did. That's awesome. So what happened from there? How did you get into the entrepreneur world and, and what made you want to start Perimeter? Yeah. So at that time, you know, I, I was taking my first computer science class at UC Berkeley I, I felt like I was kind of swimming in tech between, you know, studying at, at Cal and then, you know, working at this machine learning company in, in Silicon Valley. Um, but I, I didn't feel like I was at any, you know, in any way ready to start a company. I was, you know, I, I knew that in the future I, I might start something in that involved um, climate science or aerospace. I was really, really inspired by those, by those two industries. And, and yet, you know, I, I also thought that, you know, it might be something else completely I thought that what I should do was probably graduate, get some experience working at a company that I was really excited about. And then down the road, maybe consider, you know, doing something on my own. But while I was still working at Anadot and taking this computer science class, my family got evacuated from the Santa Rosa Tubbs fire in 2017. And at the time that fire was the most devastating fire in California history. And it was a very bewildering experience for me because when I was helping my family evacuate, um, we had no information about where to go or how to get there or what to do. And, you know, I'm over here swimming in tech, right? Just an hour up north in the Bay Area. And yet none of my, my friends or family who are evacuating from Santa Rosa have any information. And I know like how I, I know like how much money is being poured into, you know, real-time technology, analytics, data science, et cetera, in, you know, just an hour, an hour north of us. Like, why did we have nothing? Mm -hmm. And at the time I thought, well, first responders must have all the information they need to make decisions, right? My dad must have everything. He just doesn't have a good interface to get that information to citizens like me. Um, so I spent the next year while I was at Berkeley really investigating that, that question, and it turns out that my assumption was completely incorrect. First responders are primarily relying on paper maps and radios to contain some of the biggest wildfire, floods, hurricanes, tornado incidents that we've ever seen. And so while I'm at Berkeley, I am just using this as a research project. You know, my company Perimeter was never supposed to be more than that. And that's it's really scary though, by I the way, like just to dive in, I mean, it is scary. I mean, I'm in LA, we've had some fires. I mean, it is crazy that you, I mean, I'd be terrified because it's like, there's no route out. Like, how do you know where to go, where, yeah. or where it's coming from or where it's growing or what, like what route is safe to actually evacuate? Like, yeah, right. how do you know? 
And during a fire, you know, oftentimes it's not just one large wildfire. It's it's multiple, right? Embers are flying. They're starting spot right. fires. So during the Tubbs fire, there are actually 12 fires burning all around us. And trust me, when it looks like the apocalypse has happened outside, it's yeah. not clear where you have to evacuate and maybe more importantly, where you need to move away from, right? right. Where the fire is. And so, you know, it seems like at the time, it was like, well, so much of this technology already exists. Why is it not being utilized by, by citizens and by first responders? And the more research I did, the more I started to understand that, you know, the emergency management ecosystem is incredibly complex and integration is, is very challenging. And so what I, what I spent a lot of time with during this research project was just trying to understand, well, what would integration with these different systems, what would that look like? You know, because it's not, we all know that real-time mapping, you know, map-based information is available to us, right? Most of us use it every day in some cases. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it could easily be, it could easily be used by first responders and citizens during emergencies, but it really has to be done from the perspective of, you know, of those first responders, um, taking into account their workflow and the way that they need to see information and, you know, the information that is actually most relevant to them, right? You can't overwhelm someone with with information that isn't relevant when what they need is to respond. So you're saying that when a, you know, first responder, firefighter is told, gets a call that yeah. there's a fire in an area, mm-hmm. they basically get in their trucks and look at a paper map to go yes. and find where this fire is. Correct, except that they don't receive the paper map until they show up at the actual incident. Um, first responders are briefed every morning at 7 a.m. at one of these big wildfires. That's where they get a paper map for the day. And that paper map is then replaced 24 hours later um, at the 7 a.m. briefing. And any other kind of geospatial information that most of those firefighters have access to um, is something that they would probably jot down onto their paper map that they heard over radio. Wow. That's yeah. very manual and sounds really scary. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, even though I had planned to wait years um, to maybe do a venture of my own, Perimeter became something that I realized during the campfire, um, which is was, you know, after, after the tubs, it was the next kind of most devastating fire in California history. Um, it was much more devastating than the tubs fire and, and shocking to a lot of the first responders involved. And what I realized during that, during that fire is that, you know, if I took a job at a tech company where I was paid a comfortable salary, you know, five years down the line, I knew from my research that these fires were going to keep happening and they were going to continue to get worse. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that if I took a job at one of these, you know, high paying tech companies that I would always look back on my decision and I would know whether or not I chose something that'd be kind of safe and comfortable for me Mm -hmm. or knowing you know, that I did everything I could to protect the lives and livelihoods of, you know, the the communities that are so affected by wildfires and other disasters. When I asked myself the question that way, perimeter became a non-negotiable. This wasn't a question of, well, do I have enough experience? And, you know, do I know enough people? Will I be able to fundraise for this? I've never heard of a company that was doing, like, I've, I've seen so many startup pitches and I don't ever see public safety startup pitches. You know, it's like, yeah. what is this? But right. I, that's when I, I realized that, okay, but I will figure out all of these answers because we have to, you know, I've really believed that we can't keep expecting first responders to go to these incidents, to put their lives on the line, to save hours and send them to these incidents without giving them the technology that could make such a huge impact in their ability to contain the fires, right? Yeah. We're sending them to these fires with World War II technology and we can, and we have to do better than that. A hundred percent. And I think most of us out there are thinking that this is not the case. You know, I mean, I think we all were hoping that the government would do something smart with providing technology if in 2020, here we are with like, you know, some kind of supportive technology for the whole system, right? Like, I'm sure there's just so much more than just, I mean, this is kind of a, we're talking about the firefighters and first responders for fires and the people that are affected, but there's like so many other things too, I'm sure that are just completely neglected technology wise in these government departments. It's scary. Um, And I think it requires, you know, it does require a lot of government involvement, but I think it also requires a lot of, you know, Silicon Valley 
involvement as well, right? Silicon Valley houses just an incredible amount of, of talent that could solve some of the world's most intractable problems. And, you know, I think it's easy to graduate from college and want to work for some of the, you know, the, the big tech names out there. But I think what we really need to see is more government and, you know, and Silicon Valley partnerships to bring together both the people who know how to solve the problem and the folks who are really, I guess, involved in, in government in a way that, you know, their goal is to serve their communities. Mm-hmm. So if you bring that that desire and that need and those resources to serve and protect their communities together with a lot of the technical expertise that exists in this part of the world, then you will, you know, you will come up with some pretty incredible solutions to problems that have existed right under our noses for decades, if not centuries. I agree. And I hope that's the case. The only thing I think of when I think of startups or anybody trying to work with the government is that it takes so freaking long to do anything. It's basically a cog in the wheel. It's like, what do they even do all day? So I feel like that's the unfortunate thing is, yes, there's so many things that they need to do um, that aren't being done. It's really up to us entrepreneurs. Hopefully we can work alongside the governments and they'll actually like get things through and done. Mm -hmm. I just some for, maybe I'm just jaded, but, or, you know, and I've heard too many stories that it just takes a really long time. Is that true? Or do you think that it's a little bit easier these days? Yeah, it it does take a really long time. And that is something that makes, you know, especially venture capitalists very concerned about any business model that, that is primarily selling to government. Um, However, you know, in the past 20 years, we have seen some pretty incredible success stories of companies in in the government in the government space, in emergency management. You know, getting in with with county and local governments and state and even federal um, contracts in a way that allows them, you know, not only to have a, a contract that is going to be pretty sticky and recurring over the years, but right. that security, if you can be patient enough to kind of you know, get through, get into one of these government organizations, then it allows you to continue to innovate on behalf of your customers, right? You can't boil the ocean at first. Um, it's so important that you're really solving one problem really well. Mm-hmm. But if you get in with a county, for example, then you can start to investigate some of the other problems that are faced by their emergency management organizations. And you can work on those from the security of that government organization. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think there are a lot of a lot of advantages to working with government, but those sales cycles are so long that yeah. most startups just can't survive the mm-hmm. first 18 months of having to wait to go through procurement. Right. Which brings me to another topic of fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you raised, you know, a, I guess a pre-seed round. Yeah. Um, what was it like, you know, doing that? And are there funds out there that you found at least that could be a good fit? I know you're going to go out for your seed soon. Yeah. Um, you know, what are some of the challenges that you're expecting and how do you hope to overcome it? Yeah. So, you know, one of the, one of the big challenges that we've faced, I have been rejected by more VCs than I can count. Um, and I, I can count pretty high at this point. So, I, um, I, my team went through Alchemist Accelerator and we finished right before COVID. And so we set out to fundraise um, right as COVID hit and many of the pre-seed and early stage firms were, were you know, holding their cards and their cash pretty close to the chest um, right as COVID was starting for a lot of obvious reasons, right? They have to pay attention to their portfolio companies and the investments that they were making were primarily in the, you know, must have deals, right? Let me tell you, a public safety startup that sells to governments is not one of those must have, is not perceived as one of those must have deals. And so we were fortunate enough to, you know, get in, get into conversations with people who really understood the market, either experienced um, the fires firsthand in some way or, or knew someone who did, um, or who really believed that, you know, that government is a space that can have, you know, that requires a tremendous amount of, of innovation. And also, you know, the government is the largest buyer of goods and services in the world. And so when you, you know, when some of my, my earlier investors, I think um, when they started to hear about the work that we were doing, I think a lot of them got pretty excited and you know the people who got involved from, from kind of the ground level have been super engaged with the company. They work with us during our goals sessions. They you know are kind of they're advising us every week, 
and you know we're really grateful to have them. However, in the future and what we've experienced in the past is, you know, there you have to be really intentional about the way that you present a mission-driven company that wants to sell to government, because you know oftentimes people have perceived us as a nonprofit. Right. Because they're like, oh my gosh, look how cute. Her dad's a firefighter. She started a company to help his department. This is such an adorable story, but we're a serious company and we're solving a really serious need. And I have tried to stay out of the limelight a little bit because I don't want, you know, people to kind of see perimeter as like this kind of this, just this cute story about, you know, a, a local kind of a local Santa Rosa native, um, you know, coming out to to solve a problem for just her community because this is this is a really big and serious issue, and so you know I think being able to speak to the market more is mm-hmm. going to be something that we have to do if we want to be successful with some of these larger investors. Yes, because otherwise, you know, I think the mission driven nature of what we're doing can make investors who are already concerned about a market um, be even more concerned. Yeah. I was just thinking that, I mean, the thing about fundraising is a lot of times you could be asked, so how do you intend on becoming a $1 billion, billion dollar business? Right. That's like the magic question. If you can nail that question, they're like, Oh, okay. Maybe it's mission driven, but at least it's a huge market and has an opportunity to be a unicorn, right? Like that's all they really care about. So how do you think about answering that question about becoming a billion dollar business? How do you, you know, I guess, go up against those investors you're talking about that are like, oh, you have such a cute little story. You yeah. and your parents, that's so cute. You're like, no, I'm actually trying to build an enormous business. You're an idiot if you don't invest. How do you, what's your story? Yeah, well, I think I think the answer to that question has to, has to do with some historical data on companies that have done exactly what we're talking about. You know, I think we in Silicon Valley are kind of um, obsessed with this somewhat like a freemium business model, right? Um, we want to get as many users on board as quickly as possible. But in the emergency management space, the companies that have done incredibly well, um, that have IPO'd and are now valued at multiple billions of dollars, um, those companies have sold to, they've sold to counties, they've built incrementally and steadily over the past decade. This isn't something that you know, is going to be a billion dollar company in, in two or three years. This is something that takes, that takes 10 years. And so I think for us, you know, the, a lot of the stories that, and the answer that I would give to a VC when we do have those conversations is, well, look at these companies that have done the exact same thing. And, you know, the issue is not being, the, the problems are not being solved by the current companies in this space. And, you know, there's a, an absolute like blue ocean of opportunity that isn't a, you know, it's not a feeding frenzy yet. People haven't, people haven't become aware of how great the needs are in public safety. And, you know, when they become aware of these issues, this will become a feeding frenzy where so many companies will show up to, you know, to get involved in the government space. But right now what we need to do is we need to look at the data of which companies have actually survived in this space, not just, you know, be excited about some of the the popular business models right now, but look at the things that have, you know, really worked in the past and, you know, do what we can to innovate in those areas and, you know, replicate and be inspired by, you know, some of the, some of the, the traction that has worked in the, the strategies that have worked in the past. Yeah. And do you think that, do you talk to investors about expanding beyond, you know, um, technology to help fires specifically? Is that part of the plan? Are you guys, is there, is the market big enough in the fire world to focus only on that? Yeah. So we did focus on fires at the beginning. Obviously that's kind of what was the basis for my research project. But what we learned early on is that the data that we're working with is very relevant to any type of emergency from a wildfire to a flood to a hurricane, but it's also relevant to the day-to-day use case for a first responder. When I did a ride along in, um, in San Mateo County, I was exposed to the geospatial information that they would use on a call. And that pretty much consists of binders full of hand-drawn paper maps from the 1980s. And that is what these first responders are using, you know, for all of their kind of map-based geospatial information. And it's 2020, we can't do that. Isn't it crazy that firefighters are using paper to fight a fire? Like what if there's an ember that like jumps on that and burns your maps? I mean, what are you gonna do? I know, it's so ironic. And, 
you know, what, what we learned with the, what we learned after doing hundreds of, you know, potential user interviews with first responders is that, you know, solving the, the, the large incident use case, the, you know, getting them information for the wildfire, building them a platform that works for that incident is, is really helpful. However, no one is going to try a new technology on a big incident, right? They're not going to whip out the perimeter platform on, you know, the first active shooter that they're exposed to that requires real-time geospatial information. They're going to use a process that they're familiar with. And that means that in order to, to really succeed in solving the large incident use case, we have to be able to solve and provide a ton of value for the day-to-day -day incident. And so for a lot of the different kind of you know, your, your basic kind of medical 911 calls. We want to be able to provide value to first responders who, you know, who need to have this kind of information every day so that if and when they do go to what is known as a career fire, one of these, you know, huge wildfires, we want them to be so familiar with the perimeter platform that they, one, can derive a ton of value from it when they get to the incident. And two, when they're working with first responders that, that aren't using perimeter, they can share it immediately so that everyone can be on the same page. Very cool. So you are kind of in the beta testing proof of concept phase, even though you guys have been getting a lot of press for all the awesome work you've been doing. Talk to us about how beta testing has been going. Yeah, so beta testing has been going well. It's something that we've actually done for two fire seasons at this point. We started beta testing on the Kincaid fire in Northern California last year, um, which pretty much consists of me with my iPad and the platform spending a lot of time with Cal Fire or another agency on the front lines of one of these incidents, um, getting, you know, getting feedback from firefighters, you know, playing with the platform, checking for bugs, et cetera. Um, and this year, it's been something that, you know, this has been such an unbelievably devastating fire season that, you know, we've definitely had a lot of exposure to incidents. I know for me personally, my family has been evacuated twice um, wow. this season. And so this was an opportunity for, for me and my team to spend, you know, a lot of time, you know, at and near these fires to, you know, once again, you know, do work with, in some cases, you know, first responders that that are not our customers yet, but are kind of our development partners who are helping us figure out exactly what the need is. But, you know, also we did bring on our first paid customer this fire season to spend, you know, a lot of time with us um, investigating the space as much as possible, um, doing a lot of R&D with us and, you know, and kind of opening our eyes up to a lot of the other technologies that do exist in this space that we'll need to integrate with. And so our intention all along was to spend two fire seasons beta testing mm -hmm. because, you know, we're not a typical software company where we can kind of release the first version of our platform and, and hope it works, right? The information that we're working with is very high stakes and the situations um, are, are, are life threatening. And so we have to be very intentional about what we've built. And I think we're feeling, you know, really confident after this fire season, you know, having spent so much time with our customer development partners and in some cases our actual customers. Yeah. So since starting your company, I'm sure you've hit a bunch of roadblocks. Tell us about, tell us about one of your most challenging moments and how did you overcome it? Yeah. So I think, I think one of our most challenging moments was kind of a, a compilation of a lot of moments back to back. I think at first, you know, we, we would set and accomplish goals in a somewhat ineffective way. I'm going to use a, a wildfire um, analogy here. If yeah. you know that I, I just can't stop thinking about fires. So um, when there's a wildfire going on, like I mentioned earlier, there are, you know, there's oftentimes a lot of spot fires, you know, very small fires that have start, been started by embers and, you know, there's also this giant fire that you really need to contain. And with, you know, our startup, I feel like there are so many opportunities. There are so many conferences to go to and meetings that you think you need to have and accelerators you might want to apply to and pitches to give. And, you know, you might think that, I mean, you can feel productive putting out all these little fires, right? You're like, oh, that fire is really close to me. I'll put it out, you know, based on proximity. When what you really need to be doing is, you know, containing the larger incident. I think there's a big difference for us um, between operating tactically versus operating strategically. And I think one of the big mistakes that I made early on was, you know, paying more attention to 
you know, some of the spot fires and the little things that we need to do rather than working towards the bigger goal of containment or in our case, you know, bringing on our, our first large county customers. And so um, I think, you know, something that we've done that we've spent a lot of time on this year, especially and with, you know, with COVID being intentional about goal setting and being strategic about what you're working on is so important um, because, you know, your communication and your exposure to customers is, you know, is obviously going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be lacking compared to some of the in-person work that we, we relied on before. And so I think for us, you know, learning how to set goals that are based on where we want to be six months from now and a year from now has made a huge difference for our ability to actually, you know, accomplish the milestones, reach the milestones that we need to. Excellent. I like that. Operating tactically versus kind of a containment perspective, yeah, a bigger right. picture, long-term thinking. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. So what's the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a leader a found and a founder. Yeah. You know, I think there are a lot of things. I think that one failure is something that you have to be very, very comfortable with. You know, a lot of us, a lot of us, um, especially if you have any kind of perfectionistic tendencies, um, we don't like failing at things. And one of my first investors told me before I went out to fundraise, he said, Bailey, you know, I know that you, you got good grades in school, you know, you, you went to Berkeley, you probably are used to, you know, getting high marks on things. Um, but when you go out to fundraise, you're going to get rejected 90 plus percent of the time, and you're going to fail so much as a founder and you have to become comfortable with that, you know, before it happens, otherwise you are going to get destroyed. And I think it was really, really good advice for me to hear and advice that I'm kind of, you know, learning every single day, because as a founder, I fail at something every day. And I think being, you know, being able to see even the little failures and the areas that we make mistakes as, you know, as something that, you know, you're, you're growing towards that you have to make those mistakes. If you want to make something great, like you can't, you can't do it perfectly your first time. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to get out there and do something imperfectly, then you don't stand a chance at creating the thing and having the impact that you want to have. And so I'd say one, one big thing is being comfortable with those failures and recognizing that, you know, you don't lose when you get knocked down, you lose when you stop standing up. And I think, you know, that's very true for anyone, especially who maybe doesn't think they have the traditional entrepreneurial maybe background. Um, as long as what I've learned is as long as you're the person who shows up and even if you don't have all the answers, who's able to take a step in, you know, the, the right next step in the direction that you're going, um, even if you don't know everything about where you're going, um, as long as you can take that step, I think you're, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be much more successful than if you tried to figure out everything beforehand and then kind of waited to take your steps cautiously. I think sometimes you have to throw caution to the wind. Absolutely. And I love how you phrase that. You lose when you stop standing up. Yeah. That is really cool. Yeah. So before we wrap up here, um, what other, you've already shared so many great, you know, so much great advice um, for our listeners, but do you have anything else, any final words you'd like to leave with any, for any of the aspiring entrepreneurs or just founders listening? Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I think that for many of us who have a grand vision for our company, it can be both exhilarating and it can also be overwhelming. And, you know, sometimes I, I don't know if you've seen the show Silicon Valley, but there's this great yeah. image of, of Richard, the CEO, sitting in a bathtub with no water when he gets overwhelmed, fully clothed and just terrified of kind of all the expectation, all the expectations and, you know, everything that he needs to do and, you know, overwhelmed by some of the mistakes that he's already made, et cetera. And I think it's easy when we spend so much time thinking about the long-term vision of our companies to, you know, to sit there and feel overwhelmed as to how we're going to make it all happen. But I think one of the most important things about, I guess, achieving those larger goals have to do with being able to break it down and set mile markers that we can see that we can immediately achieve. I learned this, you know, from, from running with my dad when I was younger. Um, he, my dad was, was a very avid runner when I was growing up and I was not. 
And my dad would say like, oh, we just have to do like another half a mile, right? Run around this block. And I would say, dad, I can't go another half a mile. And he's like, okay, well then let's just run to that stop sign. And then when we got to the stop sign, he would say, well, let's just run to that driveway. And then when we got to that driveway, he'd say, well, let's, let's just run to the light, to the light pole. <laughs> and what he taught me is that, you know, even if I can't see the finish line, as long as I can keep setting those mile markers up along the way, then, and as long as I can, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to, you know, I don't need to finish the race. I just need to be able to keep moving in that direction. Yeah. And I think that, you know, during COVID, many of us have faced obstacles that were, you know, very unexpected to say the least. And I think as long as, you know, even if you don't know where you're going, like as long as you can keep setting up those mile markers yeah. and, you know, giving yourself the time you need to just achieve some of, you know, some of those basic steps, then you're going to get to the finish line eventually. Yeah. Baby steps. That's what they say, right? Might not be the finish line you expected, but <laughs> incremental baby steps, you know, yes. you'll eventually get there if you keep going. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bailey. Your story is really inspiring. I love what you're doing. I am so excited to see your success continue. And thanks so much for being on the show. Absolutely. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.